And while I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease of division infecting our country. Oh, shut up, lady. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN got some good news for you, Ohio. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, bad news for you, Wisconsin. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul's, uh, AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio. Radio for Humans. FYI Nation. NicoleSandler.com. Radio Free Brooklyn. Workforce Rising. No Lies Radio. Verdant Square Radio. Detour Talk. And all your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. And yes, Marcy Wheeler will be joining us momentarily for the latest on seditious conspiracy charges brought on Thursday against January 6th insurrectionists and how and if this signals DOJ and Merrick Garland are in fact working their way up toward the the uh, the criminal who until just very recently just last year once sat in our Oval Office so Quickly, here's what else is uh, very much related going on as the GO- uh, GOP attempts to murder democracy before <laughs> our very eyes. You laugh. You think I'm uh, kidding? No, I don't. I think that's remarkably well said. Thank you, Desi Doyen. You're nice welcome. to see you. I do hope uh, I do hope you're all paying attention to this because that is exactly what is going on. Election Law Blog described it this way on Thursday night uh, when they posted this story out of, yes... Wisconsin, uh, a uh, quote, a Wisconsin judge suddenly discovers that despite years of use, absentee ballot drop boxes are actually unlawful. A Waukesha County judge in the swing state of Wisconsin ruled on Thursday that absentee ballot drop boxes can no longer be used in the Badger State at all. After a three-hour hearing, Circuit Court Judge Michael Boren, this dope, determined state law allows absentee ballots to be to be returned in person or by mail, but not in a ballot drop box. 
He said he would order the state's bipartisan election commission to withdraw long-standing advice to municipal clerks that says they can use absentee ballot drop boxes. Let me guess, no evidence of any kind of fraud or anything to justify it. He not. just made it up out of whole cloth. Kind of, yeah. Well, it is Waukesha County. Drop boxes have long been available in Wisconsin, but their use expanded when absentee voting exploded due to the pandemic. More than 500 of them were available during the 2020 election across the state. When you'll recall, Donald Trump is still very, very sad that he lost the state of Wisconsin. It's almost like you have to punish the voters, I guess, for not voting for the person you wanted them to. This Claude Judge Boren's uh, ruling barring the use of all drop boxes, uh, if it survives appeal, will affect how ballots can be returned in next month's low turnout primary for the spring elections. It will have a uh, much greater uh, consequences in the fall when far more people vote in the high profile contests for governor and U.S. Senate and everything else in the midterms. Thursday's ruling came in response to a lawsuit filed by two plaintiffs who were represented by the right-wing Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Boren's ruling also prevents voters from having someone else return their absentee ballot for them, including spouses and neighbors. That's right out. The decision could also prevent officials from holding events like Democracy in the Park, which Madison staged in 2020, to allow voters to return absentee ballots directly to poll workers stationed in parks. Many of the ballot drop boxes in Wisconsin are tamper-proof. They're under 24-hour camera surveillance. They are in fire stations, libraries, other government offices. But those drop boxes can no longer be used if this judge's ruling stands. But as the Journal Sentinel notes, voters will still be able to drop ballots into much less secure blue postal boxes that are on street corners around the state. The lawsuit is part of a concerted push, they write, against drop boxes by Republicans in the state, including another challenge to the drop boxes by uh, Lieutenant Governor, former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Kleefish. She is seeking the Republican nomination to challenge Democratic Governor Tony Evers. She has asked the state Supreme Court, which is packed with right wingers, naturally, to directly take her case. Meanwhile, Republicans who control the gerrymandered state legislature have been separately trying to block the use of drop boxes by forcing the bipartisan state election commission to adopt formal rules on the use of drop boxes so that uh, if they do that, the lawmakers can then swiftly block those rules. Again, no problems with use of drop boxes unless you consider making it easier to vote to be a problem, as Republicans clearly do. So uh, that's Wisconsin. We are now in a difficult and dangerous, very dangerous state by state slog to save democracy as the fight for federal voting rights protections remains bollocked up in the U.S. Senate thanks to the intransigence of both obstructionist uh, Democratic senators Joe Manchin and Arizona's ridiculous Kirsten Sinema, who on Thursday offered an impassioned and ridiculous speech about how she really, really supports voting rights for all, and she's really, really upset about Republican state-level voter suppression and election subversion laws that are being put in place. 
and she really, really supports Democratic efforts in Congress to save American democracy with the Freedom to Vote Act and John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, both of which she really, really supports, but nonetheless is still refusing uh, to reform the Senate rule that requires a 60-vote threshold to overcome a filibuster for certain legislation in order to pass it. So darn no protecting democracy because as Cinema actually tried to sell in her Thursday floor speech, democracy will be lost if it's restored to the Senate itself. As you know, the framers of the Constitution actually wanted. If 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 that is done in order to allow passage of laws to protect democracy across the country, with a simple majority vote, somehow this would be bad for democracy? Yeah, I know. It's all as ridiculous as it sounds, but that's Kirsten Cinema. She's a ridiculous person. But that's what d- Democrats are now dealing with in, in the U.S. Senate. Currently, the so-called democracy that Kirsten Cinema is pretending to defend by blocking reform of the Senate filibuster means that GOP senators representing about 20 percent of the American public are allowed to block two voting rights bills supported by about 70 percent of Americans. So for now, the fight to save American democracy will more likely than not, barring any surprises in a Tuesday Senate vote on all of this, where at least uh, all senators will actually have to go on record for history as to where they stand at one of American democracy's most critical moments so that they can be held accountable for their Senate votes by their own voters. For the moment, this is going to be a state-by-state, court-suit-by-court-suit, voter-by-voter slog for a while. On that score, however, some uh, slightly better, actually much better news this week out of another swing state, or at least a state that used to be a swing state, new maps for Ohio's state, House, and Senate legislative districts must be redrawn. As Court News Ohio reported on Wednesday, the Supreme Court of Ohio ruled the maps do not meet voter-approved provisions of the Ohio Constitution to reduce partisan political gerrymandering. A 4-3 to three decision at the state Supreme Court concluded the maps are invalid because the Ohio Redistricting Commission did not attempt to draw legislative districts that correspond with statewide voter preference of Ohioans, as now required by the state constitution, after 71% of voters statewide approved a redistricting amendment to the state constitution back in 2015. In the opinion, the court went step by step through the redistricting process, noting, quote, all parties agreed that in statewide partisan elections over the past decade, Republican candidates had won 54% of the vote share, Democrats had won 46 percent of the vote share. So that's what the districts should essentially be lined up with, according to the state constitution. However, the Ohio House map that was adopted by the commission, made up of five Republicans and two Democrats, both of whom voted against this map, uh, favored Republicans uh, with 67 seats to 32 seats, in the uh, in the House and the Ohio Senate map fa- favored Republicans 23 to 10. 
In both cases, GOP districts would outnumber Democratic districts by more than two to one in a state that voted 54 to 46 GOP to Democratic statewide. The court concluded the maps did not meet the required proportionality of the Constitution. The Republicans here argued that uh, the provisions of the Constitution were optional. (laughs) Really? The court disagreed. The new maps uh, will be used to conduct the 2022 elections. The court ordered the commission to draw up new ones within 10 days. Again, this is after uh, November 2015, 71% of Ohioans voted to amend the state constitution to change the map drawing process to give the Supreme Court of Ohio jurisdiction to hear any challenges to these maps by the newly created Redistricting Commission. Jennifer, Justice Jennifer Brunner, yes, the former Secretary of State, she's now a Supreme Court justice. We've interviewed her uh, a number of times over the years on this show. She stated in a concurring opinion that gerrymandering at its core prevents voters from voting on equal terms to alter or reform government. Gerrymandering is unconstitutional because it denies Ohioans equal protection in the exercise of their voting power. Uh, Over at Daily Coast on Wednesday night, Anastasia P. offered some helpful context, noting that the uh, court in in Ohio is actually split four to three in favor of Republicans. But the chief justice there, Maureen O'Connor, has taken a dim view of election chicanery in the past. She turned out to be the swing vote here in favor of new maps. Uh, She also notes that Justice Pat DeWine the son of sitting Republican Governor Mike DeWine. Oh, really? Who himself is a member of the redistricting commission. He did not recuse himself. Wow. Yeah. His father's governor sits on the redistricting commission that was being sued in this case. But uh, no problems there, Ohio. Here is now... Further good news about all of this, the Ohio Supreme Court on Friday rejected the new congressional maps as well that were drawn by state Republican lawmakers as unconstitutional and ordered it redrawn. A major victory for Democrats in the state where lopsided districts have confounded their efforts to gain seats in the House over the past decade. Republicans, as uh, Washington Post reports, created a new map in which the party would have a 12 to 3 advantage over Democrats in House districts. Justice, yes. In a 50-50 state. Pretty much, yeah. Justice Michael Donnelly wrote in the court's uh, opinion, again, 4 to 3 opinion here, when the dealer stacks the deck in advance, the House usually wins. The evidence in these cases makes clear, he wrote, beyond all doubt that the General Assembly did not heed the clarion call sent to Ohio voters to stop political gerrymandering. The court ordered new maps for Congress in the next 30 days. After the previous redistricting back in 2011, Ohio's congressional delegation had gone from 10 Democrats and 8 Republicans Back when Barack Obama won the state in 2008 under the previous decade's maps to 
12 Republicans and four Democrats by 2012 after the redistricting when Obama won the state again. Not a single flip uh, seat has flipped since then. Hamilton County, for example, which contains the heavily black city of Cincinnati, that was sliced in half in 2011. And those minority voters were then lumped into districts with rural majority white voters. For the past decade, the county which voted for President Biden was represented by two Republicans, even though the constitutional amendment adopted by 70 percent of Ohio voters in 2015 called for the counties now to be kept whole this time. Well, GOP lawmakers again chopped up Hamilton County this time into three pieces. In short, on Friday, the uh, GOP majority state Supreme Court told them to try again. That could be very good news for Democrats in Ohio, as Anastasia points out over at Daily Coast. We're likely to see Democrats actually pick up anywhere from two to three to four to five seats, which could be enough to determine on its own the uh, margin of uh, control for the U.S. House this year. If they're able to access the ballot box and if they're able to turn out to vote. Oh, yeah, there's all that stuff. And uh, if a better map is drawn, but it sure looks like the state Supreme Court in Ohio is going to make sure that that happens. So there is that. As the state-by-state fight for democracy continues moving forward, the fight for accountability for the attempted theft of our last presidential election... Well, that continues as well. The first charges now filed by the DOJ against January 6 insurrectionists for seditious conspiracy were unveiled on Thursday against members of the Oath Keepers and its founder, Stuart Rhodes. And where are those charges headed? Well, Marcy Wheeler of Empty Wheel returns to the broadcast next with the latest on that and what it all means as the fight continues every day and in every way. For American Democracy, right here on the Bradcast, I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Stuart Rhodes, or Stewie, as my guest likes to call him, the founder and leader of the far-right Oath Keepers Militia Group, and yes, at one time, many years ago, a guest on the Bradcast, along with uh, 10 other members or associates of the group, were all charged on Thursday with seditious conspiracy in the violent attack on the U.S. Capitol, which was, of course, part of Donald Trump's last desperate effort to steal the 2020 presidential election. Despite hundreds of charges already brought in the year since pro-Trump rioters incited by the disgraced one-term, twice-impeached 
former president, stormed the Capitol in an effort to stop the certification of Joe Biden's 2020 election victory. These were the first seditious conspiracy charges, arguably the most serious, levied in connection with the attack to date. It marked a serious escalation in the largest investigation in the Justice Department's history. More than 700 people have been arrested and charged with federal crimes and highlighted the work that has gone into piecing together the most complicated cases. The charges rebut, in part, the growing chorus of Republican lawmakers recently who have publicly challenged the seriousness of the insurrection, arguing that, well, no one has been charged yet with sedition or treason, so it couldn't have been that violent, right? In a marvelously timed tweet on Thursday, for example, just hours before the Justice Department announced the new arrests and charges, Fox News' very, very well-respected and very, very serious senior political analyst Britt Hume tweeted, quote, Here's a thought. Let's base our view on whether January 6th was a, quote, insurrection on whether those arrested are charged with insurrection. So far, none has been. Well, guess what happened just a few hours later, Britt? Now, still, no one has been charged with insurrection, but both seditious conspiracy and insurrection against the government are very serious federal crimes. As it turns out, seditious conspiracy actually holds more severe penalties than insurrection, as many as 20 years imprisonment. Charges of insurrection or incitement of insurrection involve fines and imprisonment of just up to 10 years. So what's your view of January 6th now, Brit? Hours after Stuart Rhodes uh, was arrested in Texas, Hume finally shared a link to the Oath, Oath Keepers news, but did not directly address whether it had altered his thinking about how to define the January 6th, 2021 attack. As you might imagine... Things went very, very well for Brit Hume on Twitter thereafter. Of course, if you, unlike Brit Hume, listen to the broadcast, you may have seen Thursday's charges coming. In fact, over the holidays on this program, independent investigative journalist Marcy Wheeler of EmptyWheel.net was here with our guest host, Nicole Sandler, and pretty much spelled out exactly what was coming, including more serious charges for conspirators in far-right groups like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, as the Department of Justice continued its effort to work on the January 6th attack and the attempt to steal the 2020 presidential election. They're working on that, according to Wheeler, from the bottom up at the DOJ, even as the House Select Committee investigating the same thing was is working, if you will, from the top down. Joining us now once again today to help us make sense of the latest charges in this massive case as the DOJ and Attorney General Merrick Garland hopefully continue to work their way up the chain of command and hopefully to the guy who, in my opinion, is responsible for all of it is our old friend Marcy Wheeler, independent national security journalist at Empty Wheel and contributor to many other publications, including The Intercept, The Guardian, Politico, New York Times, and others. Oh, Marcy Wheeler, welcome back and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, I think. I think so, too. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, hey, as far as I can tell, Marcy, uh, you called it uh, before the end of the year. Did you expect that Stuart Rhodes uh, specifically would be charged and specifically with seditious conspiracy along with these 10 others? I'm not surprised at all. I think that um, it's 
One of the things that they have to do to arrest people like Rhodes or on the other side, Enrique Tadio, who's the head of the Proud Boys, mm-hmm. who, who just got out of D.C. jail today, is they need to make sure that the liability for what they're doing goes beyond just breaking into Congress because Tadio had already been arrested and sent back home. So um, what the seditious conspiracy does for Rhodes in particular is it broadens what he was doing and really implicates his efforts to arm everyone, which mm. continued. And we actually knew that these efforts continued after January 6th, because particularly with Joshua James, they you knew all the proud boys were like, Stewie says that Trump, this is in between January 6th and January 20 of, of 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like, Trump is going to, they still thought that Trump was going to invoke the Insurrection Act. And so they were all kind of gathering in Texas, and they were, they were you know, acquiring arms to do that. And so that shows a continuity of plans beyond just January 6th, in which Stuart Rose was more intimately involved. Mm-hmm. And it's a way, I mean, yeah, you know, it shuts up the Republicans. It, I think, I mean, the, the real point of this indictment is to turn the screws on the people that are charged to try and get them to flip. Well, did but, we, um, and, did, did we hmm? actually learn anything new from these charges? I know they've, they've upgraded them, if you will, from conspiracy to obstruct a, an official proceeding to a seditious conspiracy, but did we act, was there actually new information? Did we actually learn anything new that, uh, from the charges that we didn't know before? Um, there were new communications included from both Rhodes and the guy who was in charge of what they called the Quick Reaction Force, Mm-hmm. They had, I did a post back in July where I showed all the pictures from it, but they had all dropped rifles off in a comfort inn in Boston, Virginia. That, that's one of the crazy things about this. It's just, you know, the, these oath keepers are wandering around with luggage carts with big gun cases, <laughs> and it's all caught on security footage. Yeah. And so the guy in charge of that is the other person who was added to the conspiracy and there are communications from them that are new to this. And some of Stewie, some of Stuart Rhodes, are more uh, discussion of incitement, are more discussion of insurrection. Mm. Now, there are a few more communications that are very pregnant, if you will. I mean, they, there's one moment where Rhodes seems to know something that was going on, say, at the White House. Mm-hmm. There's another one where Roberto Manuta is is discussing what Rhodes thinks, and it's it's on December 19th of 2020, which is a really key day in the development of all this. And I have no certain idea who he was communicating with, but I think um, it probably my best guess is it it starts to link the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. What, why would, um, why, so that, why is de- why is December 19th an important date in this? Oh, it's when Trump was developing plans, um, and it ties to Trump calling for people to come to D.C., and the response, not just from the two militias, but definitely from the two militias. You start seeing everyone who ended up coming to D.C. booking plane flights mm. starting on December 19th. And, and you you know, there, there was this coordination between the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and actually some other militia groups, and that's one of the things that DOJ is going to flesh out in 
weeks and months ahead is that they were coordinating together. Stuart uh, Stewie, as you call him, Stuart Rhodes, uh, has said in interviews uh, with right-wing hosts that there was actually no plan to storm the Capitol, and the members who who did so had just gone rogue. He, he you know, he he couldn't have foreseen it, knew nothing about it. Nonetheless, you know, he's continued to push the lie that the 2020 election was stolen. Posts on the Oath Keepers website have depicted the groups, the group as as a victim here of political persecution. But now that Rhodes and at least uh, 10 of his buddies have been charged, is it even plausible, Marcy, that his group actually had no plans to storm the Capitol on January 6th? One of the, I, I keep coming back to this, but one of the things that is really important for people to understand is the Proud Boys were there and started the riot started, you know, attacking the Capitol even before Trump started speaking. Mm -hmm. There's some sense that they knew that bodies were going to be delivered from the from the rally by Alex Jones. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Alex Jones, close ties to Stuart Rhodes, mm -hmm. close used to employ Joe Biggs. Joe mm -hmm. Biggs used to be an InfoWars employee. He's one of the two main leaders of the insurrection on the Proud Boy side. And they all, all of these people met on the east steps of the Capitol after the Capitol had already been breached. Mm -hmm. Joe Biggs left, walked around, and met, guess who? Alex Jones and all those Oath Keepers, mm -hmm. most of them from Florida. And they went back into the Capitol and opened a second front there. Now, mm -hmm. that's a lot of coordination. And, you know, I think that the Oath Keepers are really secondary to the Proud Boys in implementing it. And there's... As I said, there's other militias, and mm -hmm. there is a terrifically alarming number of military veterans, including way too many Marines. So, you know, how, how did that brain trust work? We don't know yet. And clearly, I think the Proud Boys had a, had a, more, had a bigger role than the Oath Keepers. But one of the things that Kelly Meggs, who's one of the people who was reindicted, who got the sedition charges last night, mm -hmm. I mean, he was talking about forging an alliance between the Florida-based militias in December. And so you've got, you know, the head of the Proud Boys and people like Joe Biggs in Florida. You've got him. You've got Kenneth Harrelson. You've got a n number of the other people who went into the Capitol. They're all there on the East Steps. Alex Jones brings these unwitting bodies. They break in second second attack on the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, is the most visible way for people who aren't living and breathing this to see, to understand how that works, because it's remarkable how everyone just ended up on the same stairs Sen at the same time. And and that, uh, as you had told uh, Nicole a few weeks ago uh, on the east side of the Capitol, that is where the doors appeared to have opened from the inside. And we don't, I guess, yet know who, who opened those doors. Uh, they might have even been automatically opened. Um, no, 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 we do. We do. We do. Those have oh. been charged. Oh. Uh, with a Marine. <laughs> okay. So, like, there's literally Marines at every step of this. It was it was not a Marine. It was a guy who was, who was co-traveling with a Marine. But they've arrested about 30 people involved with the opening of the door. In fact, there was a key couple of arrests, Proud Boys, who were orchestrating it. And so they have all of these people and... Many of those defendants are talking about pleading in March, but they're, you know, it's going to take two more months for 10 to 20 more people who were involved in the opening of the East Door to plead 
potentially to cooperation agreements well, and you know but it's going to be march well the reason i ask if it's even plausible to say oh they had no intention of storming the capitol this just happened you know uh, part of the uh, indictment i guess uh, against Rhodes and and some of the other uh, pro- uh, oath keepers described the stacks the people uh, who were in uh, you know military gear one hand in front of the, you know, on on each other's shoulders, working their ways up the up the stairs in formation at the U.S. Capitol, and and apparently there was two separate stacks where this happened. They looked prepared. They had weapons and guns for this quick reaction force. If they weren't planning to uh, attack the Capitol, they sure were coord. They sure came together quickly with this with this plan, and they sure had a lot of uh, backup firepower uh, for. For what? A rally? Right. Well, I think what, what, and I did a post the other day called the structure of the insurrection or something like that. And, and one of the things I try and describe is the way in which the Proud Boys walked into this event planning to rile up the quote unquote normies. And that's what they did. I mean, they, like many of the worst, there are about 150 people who've been charged with assault, maybe about 20 of them are militia members, Mm -hmm. and the rest are people who literally, you know, some of them just came down from the rally thinking Trump was going to speak again, and by the end of the day, they were taking batons and beating cops over the face. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened, is the Proud Boys deliberately set up this this environment that could inflame the crowds, and otherwise unwitting participants would either just storm the Capitol and and Mm -hmm. make it you know, and and chase the chase the members of Congress out, or in many cases, just start beating on cops. The Proud Boys did that, but did the Oath Keepers? I mean, do we have the evidence that they were basically uh, working in cahoots in advance? That they were when we when we describe Proud Boys, Oath Keepers were actually ultimately talking about the same people and the same conspiracy on January sixth because they were working together. Yeah, no, uh, they were working together. There's this great, there's a great picture that people have been researching this. Uh, will show, and that is that when Enrique Tarrio, who, remember, got arrested as he was coming into D.C. on January 4th, mm-hmm. when he gets released from jail, he meets in a garage, like deep, <laughs> deep throat fashion, with, among others, Stuart Rose. Ah, uh, there you go. Now, I, I, I think that about eight of those that were charged on Thursday of the Oath Keepers had already been charged by DOJ with conspiracy to construct uh, to uh, obstruct an official proceeding so how do these new charges seemingly upping the ante to seditious conspiracy now how does that change the legal equation and the outlook for the uh, january 6 attackers and how does it change the political situation and i guess as you cited on twitter on thursday night the media attention the way the media now seems to regard this whole matter yeah, so the first two are, the, the last two are really easy. The media is finally paying attention. And I, you know, I've had conversations with about five CNN people who for the last month and a half have been saying nothing was happening. And they're like, wow, big news. And I'm like, <laughs> this is really the same conspiracy with Stewie at it. That's, uh-huh. You know, that's what it is. And two more charges. Stewie um, at it, yeah, and, two a serious uh, additional charges, seditious conspiracy. That sounds scary. Yeah, and, and. Uh, I'm actually a little bit more interested in there's another conspiracy for interrupting a government official's duty. And the reason I'm interested in that is is when you look at these these conspiracies, every single one that has ever been written in this case, in this investigation, could plunk Trump right into the middle of it. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I don't think you're going to charge Trump with seditious conspiracy. It would be really hard to charge one branch of government with seditious conspiracy against the other. And that's one of mm. the things that I think makes seditious conspiracy harder to charge for January 6th itself. But with Stewie, mm -hmm. you go beyond you go beyond January 6th. You go beyond, you know, you, you start talking about an attack on Joe Biden. And that's mm. that's what I think makes a seditious conspiracy. But the added conspiracy charge that I just talked about of interrupting a government official, mm -hmm. that's something that Trump did. I mean, one of the things that DOJ has been focusing on laser sharp since very early mm -hmm. is the way in which all of these rioters were targeting Mike Pence. Mm -hmm. They knew, from the Proud Boys down to people who just wandered in off a bus, they knew that their job that day was to pressure Mike Pence. So they knew all of them. Conspiracy to interrupt a federal official is that is that right? Did I hear that correctly? It's yeah. It's Something. what's the actual thing? It's the whole point is you if you interrupt a, an, a government official from doing their duty, right? Um, so it's only six year charge. It's not as serious as even the obstruction charge that they were already charged with. Uh -huh. But it's another one that you could charge people in the Willard with. So uh, in the Willard Hotel, of course, where they were plotting the, the so-called war room, where they were plotting all of this from like December through January, Trump's lawyers, Trump's campaign, uh, Roger Stone, etc. Should we assume that uh, that conspiracy or really any of these, uh, you know, will not simply apply to these 11 Oath Keepers, but that it's meant to extend to other militia groups, of course, but also to folks like Roger Stone, Alex Jones, uh, as you discussed with Nicole over the holidays, uh, then putting the entire conspiracy smack dab in the Oval Office on, on Donald Trump's own desk at that point. Yeah, I mean, I, that's where I think this, if if they succeed, I mean, the, continuing where I was going, one of the other things that this indictment did, which was really fascinating, is, um, so by the way, everyone on this indictment, with, with the exception of Stewie and Vallejo, uh, the people who weren't charged before yesterday, mm -hmm. everyone had already been charged with a, with a crime of terrorism mm -hmm. because they broke, they participated in breaking that East door. And if you do a thousand dollars of damage to a government building, you can, you can be charged with a terrorism enhancement. Mm -hmm. So they were already facing 10 years extra for that. Mm -hmm. And that's what got people like Jessica Watkins held in detention way back a year ago. So they, they were already charged with terrorism. There's the obstruction, which has been this kind of garden variety thing that actually is a 20-year sentence that, that CNN hasn't been impressed with. Now you have seditious conspiracy, the interrupting with the government official. What they did is in the conspiracy to obstruct the election, they changed it. And they changed it from, this is kind of inside baseball, but the mm -hmm. important thing is they changed it such that the punishment goes from being five years, which mm -hmm. is what, what it was before yesterday, to being potentially 20 or 30 years mm. if you can prove that there was an intent to kidnap or assassinate somebody. Mm. And one of the things that was formally added in the indictment yesterday, but which we knew about, is that Kelly Meggs, I keep coming back to him, uh -huh. Kelly Meggs on election day said, I'm going to go kill Nancy Pelosi, and then after he busted into the Capitol, walked down the hallway towards Nancy Pelosi's office. Uh, that's creepy. Looking for her, yes. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that DOJ is getting closer to claiming that the Oath Keepers, when they entered the building, had a plan to either kill or kidnap Pelosi and certain members of Congress and possibly Mike Pence. The the other branch, they you know, they split up when they got into the rotunda and some went towards the Senate where Mike Pence might have been. 
And so the same obstruction conspiracy that two days ago carried a five-year sentence now carries a 20 or, you know, possibly more year sentence. Uh. So they've gone from, you know, say 25 years of exposure on Wednesday to 80 years of exposure Uh. on Friday. And these are all pretty—yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and so, I mean, DOJ, again, they're turning the screws. They're trying to get these people to flip because they need— you know, like I've said that Joshua James in particular, he's he's a guy from Alabama on this indictment. Mm-hmm. He probably is going to be one of the most useful oath keepers to talk about their interactions with Roger Stone. He hasn't flipped yet, but maybe he'll flip to avoid being called, to, you know, to be uh, avoid being uh, convicted of sedition. Yeah. And that's what I think. That's what I think you would need to get through to Roger Stone and beyond him to others. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, noting that these uh, these guys are all pretty low level grunts. They were doing the dirty work, but uh, they have every reason at this point, I would suspect, to to flip on, on uh, you know who, if anyone had directed the broader conspiracy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Marcy, I want to ask you about this because, well, I want to sort of connect the dot. You noted with Nicole a couple of weeks ago, uh, in response to critics, some of whom we featured on this program, that Garland is not doing enough in investigating Trump (laughs) and his cronies, you know, or not doing so quickly enough, that the DOJ is not only sort of working their way up the food chain here, but also at the same time, and I forgot until I heard you mention it that, yeah, the DOJ raided Rudy Giuliani's office and apartment, seized his cell phones and computers, et cetera, just after not long after Biden took office and that they're still in, in the middle of a privilege review of the documents that they uh, that they obtained in that raid to determine what they can actually use against them. What specifically are they looking? Do we know what they're actually looking for in that probe? And do you see that um as well, leading up to Trump, is that involved in in all of this, uh, where we are, this what, what I call the attempt to steal the 2020 election? So the known warrant targets Rudy for sleazy influence peddling with Ukrainian officials in, in the lead up to Trump's mm-hmm. impeachment. And, it, and actually, the, the dates on the seizure for these warrants go through impeachment. So, Which was and, February and, you know, of 2021. Well, they go through December 31st of 2019. The first impeachment. Um, okay, okay. The first impeachment, yeah. Right. Hard, okay. you know? um, yeah. So, so, you know, a lot of people are like, why didn't DOJ do anything about Ukraine? And mm-hmm. it's like, well, that's why they're going after Rudy. Uh, ah, okay. And you don't get to Trump on Ukraine without going through Rudy. Well, they've been spending, it was April 28th that uh-huh. they seized his phones. It's eight months that they've been trying to get his phones. Uh-huh. But what was interesting in the privilege review, which is, which is, they did this as well with Michael Cohen. I mean, with, with both Rudy and Michael Cohen, first they got the emails. They used the emails to get the phones. They, with the phones, did a special master review so that mm-hmm. the special master could look at the content and say, crime fraud exception. Mm-hmm. In other words, like, Michael Cohen was, was, helping Donald Trump pay off his sex partners. Uh Rudy Giuliani was helping Trump coerce Ukraine for election favors. Um, Attorney-client privilege privilege doesn't protect you if you're using it to commit a crime. Committing it a crime. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what the entire point of the review is. But what was really fascinating is DOJ pulled some fast steps 
And in the process, they got the judge in question to prove the range, the date range for this for this privilege review to go from January 1st, 2018, so just when Rudy Giuliani starts helping Trump obstruct the Mueller investigation mm-hmm. and go through the date of seizure, so April 28, 2021. And mm. we know there's basis to get probable cause warrants for Rudy on both of those. Mm. For example, he was in touch with one of... Um, he was discussing with a Proud Boy associate some of the actual people who were arrested at the riot in the in the weeks afterwards, <laughs> which is, you know, like the president's lawyer was doing this. Yeah. So, and then we know that, that uh, Rudy was under investigation before he was Trump's lawyer for trying to buy Michael Cohen's silence with a pardon. So those materials become accessible to DOJ, and we wouldn't know about it uh-huh. so long as they get a warrant to access it, including everything for January 6th. So now we don't, they... so we don't know if they've done that. We don't know. Uh-huh. I mean, in fact, like late last month, the judge, not even late last month, uh, middle of last month, the judge was like, hey, the special master is about to um, have a determination on what is privileged here. And the arguments about what is and what isn't have to be public, not the stuff that you're trying to protect, but the arguments have to be public. And when a different judge did that in the Michael Cohen case, Rudy and Trump gave up. They didn't want to explain why they were trying to hide this stuff. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what happened now, because we've heard nothing since, and we were supposed to hear stuff. So we don't know what's going on with Rudy, but it was incredibly invasive. Everyone's like, oh, you know, Merrick Garland will never go after Trump's people. It's like the first thing that, that Lisa Monaco <laughs> did. Literally, her first day on the job, they raided the former president's personal lawyer. And we haven't heard... Yeah, it's kind of amazing. And if it is broadened out to all of this, I mean, Rudy has everything. He talked with everybody. And it's just kind of amazing that we haven't heard anything about it. So I think a lot of people forget that that's even happening. Marcy, I've got very, very few minutes here. Let me, But I want to ask you some quick questions about January 6th, if they can be asked and answered quickly. I don't know. The the, the House uh, Select Committee investigating uh, January 6th uh, has, has also cited conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding as one of the crimes that they may refer to the DOJ as part of their final report. Would you expect them also to sort of up their referral now to these other charges, seditious conspiracy, uh, you know, interrupting a a federal government official, so forth? Um, Maybe the latter one, the interrupting a federal government official. I I hope they don't go after seditious conspiracy. The referral, really, January 6th committee is going to be most useful drafting warrants for DOJ, telling DOJ what they've discovered DOJ needs to go get. And DOJ can do it without all the fights that these people are putting up. Um, and I would be shocked if they didn't take the, the Meadows referral and use it to get some of those materials, some mm-hmm. of which, by the way, are going to be available from the archives. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think that um, doing, referring, referring anything is unnecessary. DOJ is already investigating this stuff. So mm. January 6th should think instead of what can we make available to DOJ having gotten by executive privilege or mm-hmm. speech and debate privilege to give it to them to make it easier for them. What can we do to make their job easier? But, you know, if they referred seditious conspiracy, it would just really, I think, make 
it easier to discredit them when they don't mm. need to go there. There's no point. Well, it feels to me, and sort of the reason I'm asking this, it kind of feels to me like the committee is doing much of the work that many people believe that the DOJ should be doing. And I guess we don't know. Do we know if the DOJ is doing similar work or is uh, the committee doing one thing, the DOJ is doing another? Is it normal to allow a congressional committee to sort of do the legwork uh, before they, before the DOJ then later jumps in and uses that committee's work as sort of a launching pad uh, for their own investigation? Well, four things. One is Mueller got referrals, the, especially Sissy, but the Roger Stone prosecution he basically went to the House Intelligence Committee and said, give me Roger Stone. And he used that as a way to... The, the Roger Stone prosecution was actually one step in a larger investigation, and, and it was an easy way to go after Roger Stone without showing his cards for the bigger stuff. So Mueller did it. Mm-hmm. I would expect that the January 6th investigation would do it. I would expect that they are coordinating very closely, and based on the assumption they were doing that, some of the absences in the January 6th committee list of subpoenas are really telling. So, for example, we know DOJ is investigating both Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. Mm-hmm. Neither of them have been subpoenaed by January 6th. Mm. And there are a list of similar things like that yeah. where one would assume that January 6th is holding off because DOJ has said, don't go there yet. One of the things uh. I find delicious about this is that you remember, because you've studied this as closely as I have, but remember how Iran-Contra got screwed up? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You had, an in- you had an independent investigator. You had a House investigation. You had a select committee investigation led by none other than Dick Cheney. Yeah, right. Who ruined everything immunity left and right. So yep. now you have his daughter, who is the mirror image of him, who right. learned all of his evil tricks, uh-huh. trying to help an investigation at DOJ. And if I'm reading that right, the irony of it is just delicious. <laughs> she does not want to give inappropriate, acci- even accidental immunity to uh, people that she shouldn't. So hopefully she's in touch, uh, close touch with the DOJ. Are you still, you, you, were, you were still, uh, seemed uh, quite bullish on uh, on the DOJ, on Merrick Garland, uh, when you talked to Nicole a few weeks ago, saying you didn't know for sure that this whole strategy would work, but it sounds like you remain bullish uh, that they are doing the job that we need them to do to finally, at some point, even if it's way longer than we all want it to be, uh, finally, at some point, get accountability for, uh, well, Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I want to emphasize all the time that you need to uh, take the time to do it right. You need to lay certain foundations. Merrick Garland said this in his speech. There's no guarantee. And some of the defendants that we've talked about today are pretty clearly making the same gamble that Roger Stone and Paul Manafort did, which is I can either flip, Mm-hmm. entering into a cooperation agreement and maybe get five years, get, you know, um, even Rick Gates got uh, six months or something, mm-hmm. or I can gaslight, I can put up ridiculous defense that does nothing but try and undermine DOJ at its core, and in exchange for that, if Trump wins again or some Republican wins again, I will get a pardon. Right. I think the seditious, I think the sedition charges make that less likely. 
So in other words, I think it's going to be harder for anybody short of Donald Trump to come in and as their first thing to pardon a bunch of people who've been prosecuted for sedition. <laughs> sedition, right. Um, and so they may ca- they may think of that, but, but you know, you still have to convince people. There, it, you know, it's a prisoner's dilemma, and given what Trump was able to do with pardons, they probably assume that they can do what Paul Manafort and Roger Stone... I mean, Roger Stone is networked in with all of these people, and he is advising them, and he is sending his lawyers with them for their depositions to Congress. Right. So one would assume that the the strategy remains the same. You need to convince these people that that's not going to happen this time around. And if you can't convince them, then you may get no further than than these Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. Well, it also seems like the math uh, is quite a bit different when Donald Trump is sitting in the White House. You can take that gamble and hope for that pardon versus not in the White House and hope that you can get him back into office to get your pardon down the road. Seems like that's going to change. And and the other thing is that, uh, you know, there were... Two firewalls, really, for Donald Trump. They were named Paul Manafort and Roger Stone, and mm-hmm. they happened to be friends from way back in, in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Here you've got 50 ways to get to Enrique Tadio. <laughs> and yes, his most senior uh, lieutenants may remain loyal to him, but if 25 other people flip against him, yep. then you're going to be able to get to Tadio. There you go. And then right up the chain. Got to get out. Marcy Wheeler, thank you. Uh, Of course, uh, a a journalist who you need to follow on Twitter, where you can follow her at Empty Wheel, uh, but also on her website, EmptyWheel.net. I suspect we're going to be uh, calling you out there in Ireland and bothering you more often these days in, in the months ahead. Thanks, Marcy. All right. Thanks, Brad. Okay, I, Des, I think I have time for one more story. Okay, make it quick. That I think you're going to like. I know, I'm going to be quick. Uh, quick break, and we're back with that story. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. I believe it's time for me to fly. I know. I know. (laughs) I'm going to make it quick. I promise. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. From the good wheeler, Marcy Wheeler, to the evil (laughs) wheeler. In our uh, recent uh, Green News report, Desi uh, reported on the horrific news that Virginia's right-wing governor-elect Glenn Youngkin had announced that former coal lobbyist turned Donald Trump's former EPA administrator Andrew Wheeler had been tapped to serve as Virginia's new Secretary of Natural Resources. That is the Commonwealth's equivalent of EPA administrator, essentially. And it's the equivalent of putting the fox in the hen house. Very much so. It's also another example that, yes, elections matter. Well, uh, some moderately encouraging news for you today on that before we fly. More than 150 former Environmental Protection Agency employees urged the Virginia Senate on Friday to oppose the nomination of former EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler to uh, GOP Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin's cabinet. The announcement of Wheeler's appointment by Youngkin last week sparked an immediate backlash from the state's conservation community. 
According to AP on Friday, and many Democratic state senators have publicly announced their opposition, ex-EPA officials who worked under both Democratic and Republican administrations detailed their concerns to the Democratic-led upper chamber in Virginia in a sharply worded letter first shared with the AP describing Wheeler as pursuing an extremist approach, methodically weakening EPA's ability to protect public health and the environment. Wheeler also sidelined science at the agency, they say, ignored both agency and outside experts, rolled back cuts to greenhouse gases and to protect the climate, and took steps to hamstring the EPA and slow efforts to set the agency back on course after Trump's original scandal-plagued first EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, left under a cloud of corruption. Wheeler had worked from 1995 to 2009 as a staffer for climate denier champion Senator Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma before he then became a lobbyist. Wheeler, not Inhofe. His uh, client list included Murray Energy, one of the largest coal companies in America. So naturally, he's a perfect fit for Trump's EPA and now for the newly elected Republican governor of Virginia to head his uh, to be his secretary of natural resources. So uh, the good news here is that uh, both the House and the Senate in Virginia have to approve these cabinet members. The House is now once again GOP controlled in Virginia, but Senate Democrats, if they remain unified, their 21-19 majority in the upper chamber could end Wheeler's nomination in Virginia. That would be great. That would be really great. We'll leave you with that great thought until we next return. See, all may not be lost yet for Virginia uh, and for climate action there. We will find out. All right, time for us to fly. My thanks to my guest, the uh, indispensable Marcy Wheeler of Empty Wheel, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. And hey, we are now officially celebrating our 19th year at bradblog.com. Yes, it's our anniversary week, our 18th anniversary week. Please send us congratulations by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves for another 18 years anyway we'll discuss that later <laughs> drop me email i'm bradcast at bradblog.com on facebook's and the twitters i am the brad blog see you there until we see you here next time i'm brad friedman good luck world time for me to-